Hey, this is Eugene Rapkin, and you're listening to the Style Zeitgeist Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Eugene, and I'm here with a special guest today, Peter Tetke of uh, Misfits. Uh, Misfits is a production company that just released uh, a documentary series about fashion called Kingdom of Dreams. Uh, I watched it twice already, and I thought it was a fantastic documentary, even for those of us uh, who are familiar with the story. And the story is sort of the rise of two fashion conglomerates, LVMH and Caring, um, and the talent that helped them get there. And um, depending on your point of view, was exploited or not. Uh, and but the documentary goes through quite fine detail. It's four parts. It's four hours, uh, not four hours, like forty-five minutes each episode. Um, and I found it really fascinating. So welcome, Peter. Thank you, and thank you for that lovely introduction, Eugene. Yeah. Um, tell me, how did the idea for the series came about? Come about? Well, uh, it really came about while we were making um, our film about Alexander McQueen. Yeah. Poster on the wall. Yeah. Which, um, I've, which I've seen and reviewed. Yeah, yeah. I remember that well. So, I mean, while we were working on that, we, were, um, we became fascinated with the politics and the the business context that McQueen's life was unfolding in. We couldn't really um, explore it in that much detail in the, it, 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 while making a biopic about McQueen. Um, but we felt that there was a bigger story behind his story that we wanted to unwrap. Uh, and that was galvanized by, you know, the whole shenanigans over McQueen's being brought on as creative director Givenchy, uh, and then growing disaffected with um, with his position at Givenchy, and uh, and sort of um, uh, meeting Tom Ford and then Domenico de Sole, and and, and effectively defecting to mm-hmm. this new, uh, apparently much more creative, fre- creative friendly uh, environment that that, that Gucci Group had at the time under under Tom Tom Ford and Domenico. Um, and so we kind of thought, thought, thought that there's something in that. There's something in, in, in that story and in the other creatives who we obviously knew were also involved in that particular in that in that particular uh, period of history. And the more that we researched it, I mean, we started reading up about it while we were still making McQueen and just felt, God, this is so exciting because it's the story of, of uh, globalization to some degree. Um, sure. And it's also, uh, it's also the kind of how business, how commerce and creativity work uh, sometimes hand in hand, sometimes in conflict. And, um, and we found that that was a story that really attracted us. Um, and, uh, and so that was one side of it. Um, we had read a book by Dana Thomas, who was a consultant on McQueen. Sure. 
called Deluxe. Um, and it really did tell the story of this period and gave us a sort of like a, a kind of a very valuable um, uh, source, piece of source material that we could work from. Uh, and also the other thing is that we knew from our experience making McQueen that we had these, that we'd sort of uncovered these really wonderful uh, archives um, of fashion in the 90s and 2000s uh, that didn't only show um, uh, the, the, the collections, the shows, uh, but they also took us behind the scenes. There were interviews with all the major players. So we sort of like thought we'd never get interviews with uh, with any of our major protagonists in the sure. story. Uh, we yeah. just knew that was going to be the case, but we knew that we had that if we set this project up, we'd be able to tell a lot of the story through mm. through the archive. That was yeah. so. Those were our that, that was our the foundation. Yeah, and the footage is amazing. Like I said in the introduction, even you know I'm intimately familiar with the story uh, through having read ton of articles, through living it, you know, as a fashion fan and as a journalist. Uh, thereafter, and this story is still playing out today to to, to some degree. Um, this battle between LVMH and caring and corporatization of fashion and sort of the global domination that these two conglomerates are seeking, I, I would personally say at the expense of the entire fashion industry, you know, that they really are um, killers in in the business sense but i did find just the footage alone is worth the price of admission uh just see also like seeing like malcolm mclaren for example <laughs> at a at, at, a, at a she show by galliano uh this, this was such a great moment for me because uh, we did a whole podcast on malcolm mclaren um early on uh and for me, someone who operates r right now, and you, uh, it sounds like you've bumped up against this as well, of course. Right now, the PR environment is so, everything is so tight. Everything is so canned. Nothing is candid. And to go back and see how much looser it was in the 90s that you were able to find that footage, that they would talk on camera and would say things that, Today, there's no way in hell they would say that. I found that utterly fascinating. Yeah, uh, it, it, isn't it? And, and that is something that really struck us, even when we were making McQueen. You know, we'd find all of these incredible interviews from the 90s, and then there was almost a moment where you sensed the guard going up uh, and the gatekeepers taking control. Uh, mm -hmm. And suddenly, you know, it was really difficult to kind of. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, even with McQueen, even with McQueen, I was like, where's Sarah Burton? I, I have an idea why she's not in the documentary, right? Um, but it's, you know, that's all par for the course, of course. Um, so tell us, uh, you know, tell the audience just a bit of sort of the synopsis, the plot, you know, uh, because there are plenty of people who do know the story and there are plenty of people who don't, you know. So we start in the 80s and 90s and what happens? We start with, with, with uh, a kind of two, uh, two people on a quest 
And, and we always looked at this, by the way. I think it's very important to frame. We kind of thought we can tell this was almost like a gothic fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so we really started with this idea that you had in one corner you have John Galliano coming out of the the punk and new romantics blitz kids scene in London, uh, and you have on the other hand uh, Bernard Arnault, who is from a um, a very well-to-do uh, bourgeois French family in the north of France who own a construction business. And both of these men, they're entirely, in every sense, in their education, in their personality, utterly different, chalk and cheese. But they both gravitate and are pulled towards the same thing, which is the house of Christian Dior, which in the 80s has fallen into kind of, you know, it's kind of become a dusty shadow of its former glory. And uh, yet to each of these guys, it represents the Holy Grail. So for Arnaud, it's sort of like this cherished, iconic name that represents France. So he tells the story of how he was in a taxi cab in New York and the driver couldn't tell him the name of the French president at the time, but he knew the name of Christian Dior. So you have that and you have... Arno understanding that when the opportunity comes up to buy um, uh, Christian Dior, because it's part of a portfolio of businesses that is on the verge of bankruptcy, that this is something that he has to go for. Um, and then you have uh, John Galliano, um, a young dreamer graduating from St. Martin's College in London. And, you know, for him, uh, Christian Dior is the epitome of couture it's the 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 the, the greatest um the greatest master of uh of, of couture um, imaginable and whose work he studied in the vna uh, and in books and he dreams of one day owning a house like christian dior or better still taking over christian dior that so these two guys are drawn to this common holy grail mm-hmm. uh, and they get there in the end and that's really where our story starts it starts episode one is really about how they both take uh they they both they both come together their fates their destinies converge on christian dior uh and dior becomes the foundation stone for this new burgeoning empire that arno is building um, mm-hmm after he acquires LVMH as well. Um, And having Galliano, uh, who doesn't immediately seem like the obvious person to take on um, uh, the the mantle of Dior at its head, actually becomes the model for what he then decides, decides to do in his disruption of fashion, which is to bring these young, iconoclastic, brilliant designers um, from the fashion colleges of London and New York into run these sort of slightly moribund um, houses, uh, which outrages the French establishment, the French fashion establishment. Yeah, I was going Uh, to to ask about that, right? Uh, You know, he wasn't looking in France and that must have been interesting. No, he wasn't. Uh, in, in fact, um, 
he had had, uh, and his name is clean gone out of my head, yeah, Gianfranco Ferre. He'd had sure. Gianfranco Ferre in for a, a couple of years, yep. not slightly more, at, at Dior. And, and, and that as well um, uh, uh, had outraged Scandal. the French establishment. <laughs> um, but, but that was nothing on the transfers of Galliano into the LBMH Empire, first of all, Givenchy, and then at Dior, and then uh, even more of a scandal bringing in Alexander McQueen, who was proper full-on punk um, yeah. <laughs> coming in to take over at Givenchy. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, yeah, looking for an American designer to come in and do ready-to-wear at Louis Vuitton was um, – was was I think that was more inspired by the success that Tom Ford um, was having at Gucci, at Gucci. you know, mm-hmm. as Tim Blanks says brilliantly. You know, <laughs> well, would make perfect sense if you have an American designer doing great things yeah. at Gucci. Why not have a, a, a an American designer come in and take over at Louis Vuitton? Right, right, yeah. And it just occurred to me that probably he was also thinking, well, America is our biggest market at the time. Why not bring an American designer, you know, and since Louis Vuitton was a clean, there was no ready-to-wear before, so he could do whatever he wanted with it. And I love when you talk about that moment when uh, uh, Princess Diana, like, carries a Dior bag and everyone photographs it and the sales go through the roof and there are no realizers. Like, oh, well, we are in a completely new era the clothes don't matter anymore the clothes become and the shows become marketing vehicles for bags that's that's a seismic change in the fashion world and and that's really what we get into in in i've described to you a little bit episode one with these two guys converging on 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 on, uh, on christian dior and episode two really becomes about exactly what you're talking about it becomes about the importance of accessories and in particular handbags and then the the so-called war of handbags as it's often called Mm -hmm. that breaks out between uh as arno tries to do a hostile takeover uh, of gucci which has been kind of had a renaissance under under tim uh, tom ford So we have, uh, you know, to fast forward a bit, we're talking about 1995, Galliano's first show for Givenchy, a success. Galliano is shooting for the moon. Why not? He comes to Arnaud and says, I want Dior. And Arnaud says, fine. And then he brings in McQueen. Meanwhile, he, you know, he, uh, he also owns Celine, I guess, by the time. But Gucci is a tremendous mistake, right? Because he has a chance of buying Gucci. They go to him and he says no because he thinks it's sort of musty house, even though he has already track record of revitalizing houses. I wonder if part of it, on the one hand, he's a visionary and very... um, anti-Parisian, this Parisian haute bourgeois hauteur that we constantly see in conservatism. But I wonder if there is part of that in him. And he says, eh, he thinks like, ah, eh, Gucci is this Italian brand. You know, it's not from Paris. I don't need it. 
you think there was a bit of that as well? I wonder if there's like a two-sided personality in him. I, I think that I think that when he first took a look at it, uh, it was in such a mess. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you had you had just had the murder of Maurizio. Um, uh, you know, it was it was tainted by. Uh, even though it was no longer in the family's hands, it was tainted by those divisions and uh, and and, um, and scandals and um, and I. It's difficult to know because here I'm second guessing, um, I, I, but I just think it was too hot to handle in a sense. Mm -hmm. You know, there was no, there was no, there wasn't the same. I guess maybe there wasn't the same sort of. You know, whereas with something like Vuitton, which he had in his hands and which was, you know, the luggage was very staid, but it was still generating billions. I, I, I guess he I guess he felt I don't need this at this point. Mm -hmm. It's hard to know. But, yeah. but, but, you know, within no time at all, Tom Ford has kind of like come from nowhere because he was a mm -hmm. knitwear designer at, at, at Gucci. He's yeah. come over and he's been spotted by Domenico de Sole uh, and, and promoted. Uh, and it's a kind of a last-ditch attempt to save this company. And this last-ditch attempt hinges on this one show um, that is just extraordinary uh, uh, um, and the date of which I've totally forgotten. But, you know, I think everyone will will recall it. Yeah, it was 95, I think, or 94. So, so very parallel. Yeah. V very parallel. Very parallel. And then um, uh, Arnaud realizes he's made a mistake. Right? But by then, Gucci is public. Gucci is public, which was also a mistake, right? In retrospect, because now anyone can initiate a hostile takeover, which is uh, what Arnaud does. And... Uh, you know, DeSole and Tom Ford go to Tino, uh, the lumberman. That's right. <laughs> and they exactly. say, <laughs> yeah, the, this is what uh, fascinates me. And so, you know, Arnaud buys 40%. And, and this is another thing I can't wrap my head around. They buy Yves Saint Laurent uh, like almost concurrently as he buys Gucci and how the hell in the world did Arnaud buy Dior and just look at Yves Saint Laurent and said, I don't need that. That makes no sense to me also. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those moments where, where, you know, in the story, where uh, and how I'm just trying to remember because it's either uh, it, it it's it, it's almost like a throwaway thing, you know. Uh, I remember Dana Thomas talking about this and saying, you know, and uh, so it, it, first of all, the first miraculous thing here is that from as as, as Thomas Cam says, from actually Pino first being introduced to the idea of buying Gucci to closing the deal. Is eighteen days. Crazy. Anyone who knows 
anything about business knows that that is quasi impossible. And at the same time, in that 18 day window, he's also negotiated the purchase of uh, Yves Saint Laurent from, it's not, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, uh, was it Sanofi? Uh, I think it was. Uh, he, he negotiated that purchase as well. So it's an extraordinary sort of double coup. And, and as it, ha- as it happens, you're think- you are thinking, Yves Saint Laurent was available? Um, yeah, right. It wasn't part of, right. Part, yeah. It wasn't part of Arno's portfolio, and and who knows? Again, you know, that's one of the mysteries where this is not in any official history that I've come across. Um, and you know, I think we'd have to have Monsieur Arnaud uh, on the line with us to explain um, what, what, why he hadn't gone for that. All right. <laughs> well, let me give him a call, and we'll. we'll, we'll. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and and so here's a question for you. You know, Arnaud comes from a real estate background. He spent some time in the States. Uh, and as Terry Egan says, you know, he learns this cutthroat business practices in the States of, you know, no prisoners, corporate takeovers, uh, et cetera. Pinot comes from lumber industry. You know, he owns some retail stores. Do you think these men really care about fashion? Or was it just a business opportunity for them? And I know it's a tough question and it's hard to answer. I think it was more than just a business opportunity mm-hmm. in different ways for both of them. Uh, we came across a couple of, uh, of um, in a couple of books about, I don't know, about LVMH, uh, there are references to the fact that he, his mother uh, wore um, uh Dior to, to to go out and his recollection of of how glamorous she looked and and also she wore Dior perfume and so there was a sort of like a and also there's a northern French connection there as well mm-hmm. so I think that without becoming too going too Citizen Kane rosebud about it I think there was a <laughs> connection there with mm-hmm. with I think there was a connection there that Arno understood what mm-hmm. what Dior represented and that was the that was the thing that galvanizes this whole story and you know i mean you know his takeover of lvmh was i've heard it i've read was partly motivated by the fact that lvmh actually owned dior perfumes right Um, they bought the perfume business from busak many years before so Dior Couture and Dior Perfumes were split. And mm-hmm. Arno realized very early on that how important perfume was going to be and that he had to bring these two back under the same roof, as well as, you know, bringing back a lot of the licenses and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's in the way, you know, the opposite of a, 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 a classic mergers and acquisition person who's just basically asset stripping. That's mm-hmm. not what Arno does. 
um, he does the reverse of that. He brings mm-hmm. everything back. He understands the power of brand and the idea of brand before anyone else does. And I think that's where his particular genius absolutely is. And we wanted to be nuanced about this. I mean, you know, there's a great temptation, as you say, to just view Arno as the killer, which he right. is. He's ruthless as yeah. a businessman. Um, uh, but I think there's something more to it than that. Mm-hmm. And then on, on, on Pino's side, when you uh, read and look into Pino's story, you see very, very early on that there is this passion for art and for creativity. It's as though it's the thing that he aspires to that will take him out of the sort of Brittany and the lumber business and so on. There's this dream of of art and he falls in love with art at a small Breton gallery uh, mm-hmm. in, a, in, in a small town in Brittany. Um, uh, 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 and so it's not, again, it's not that thing of the usual story of the tycoon who can afford anything, so it's just buying up all the art that they can. There's mm-hmm. something a little bit more sort of, you know, there's another motive at work. Yeah. Um, and so it's easy to see how Pino may have been attracted to the fact that this was Pino had been obviously watching Arno, who he knew, and watching right. how Arno was creating this luxury empire and was probably thinking, I want some of that mm-hmm. because all of my businesses are very much in French territory. Um, mm-hmm. You know, PPR was, that was, that was the, yeah. uh, that was. The, yeah, well, so it was a catalog business, that. right? <laughs> it, was a, it was a catalog business, but he also owned Le Fnac. And they're all French businesses. They couldn't mm-hmm. be globalized necessarily. Mm-hmm. And whereas luxury business could be. So I think that there was a, a, a um, there was absolutely a, a, a business motive behind it. But I think also there was probably an attraction to the aesthetic and creative aspects of the business as well mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. made it different to the other businesses that he had invested in up and up until that point. Um, there's a great story actually uh, that, um, that, uh, that, that, that we read about that, you know, when he was first told um, that, uh, that, 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 that Gucci might be available that he went completely incognito to New York uh, and went into the Fifth Avenue Gucci store mm-hmm. and just took a look around it. And he would have seen, of course, the, the, the every aspect of, because, you know, Tom's Ford is, is, Tom Ford's aesthetic mm-hmm. um, was expressed not just in, in, in the clothes, but also in the architecture um, and the way that everything was merchandised um, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and marketed. So he would have seen all of that, and he would have seen what a coherent vision that was. Um, so, uh, so yes, I think, I, I think it's, I think for both of them, uh, there was more than just a business opportunity at work here. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um Nevertheless, what happens is that they they harness the creativity of these young, supremely talented, iconoclastic in some way uh, designers. Because even Tom Ford, who you know, it, and I will ask you about all of them, but Tom Ford sort of stands apart to me. In, uh, in uh, you know, he seems like he has a much cooler. 
uh, head on his shoulders. Uh, he understands business. I mean, he even he talks like a banker. You know, you you read like you you listen to those interviews. And, you know, he knows what's he's not there. Uh, the, the the consummate artiste who's never don't show me numbers. Um, but he is also iconoclastic in the way he turned Gucci around. You know, very irreverent ir- with irreverence to to its past um so and they you know the story is in part really how they squeeze these designers and we 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 know it's way more complicated than that you know they were willing participants but at some point the balance of, uh, you know, these people are talented and we need to give them room, space, um, healthy working environment. That all goes out the window, right? You know, Galeano at some point has to design, you say in the documentary, it says 32 collections a year. That is insane. No, no matter what staff you have, you know, McQueen had to design 12, I think, at some point, collections a year. And those, you know, you, like you also say, they are not the people who phone it in. Their soul is in this. You know, they cannot, they answer to themselves first and foremost. Like, they cannot phone it in and fake it. So, so this... You know, it really does feel like they begin to get squeezed and squeezed and squeezed for more and more, like growth at all costs. What was your impression as you were researching everything and seeing everything? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. When we started the this whole process, uh, I remember just almost on the back of a napkin sort of like just writing down you know um uh tom ford is exiled from um from gucci group which he has created not just the recreated the brand but he's effectively been the main force with domenico de sole behind it becoming a multi-brand group uh uh, uh um a few years later uh uh alexander mcqueen commits suicide within a year practically of that uh, there's been a kind of a social and career suicide of john galliano um and then a couple of years later um mark jacobs leaves and it's kind of like kind of initially um i i i was almost thinking god it's like you know, if we, we could set this up almost like a uh, um, uh, a serial killer film, <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? yeah. in that you've got these, you know, you've got these these four supremely talented and individual um, people who have had a transformative effect on uh, on fashion, and I would say beyond fashion, been key players in 100%. popular culture um, in the nineties and two thousands, and. They've all gone, mm-hmm. um, and they're either dead or in a kind of a limbo. And you know, Tom had a 
kind of a nervous breakdown as well. And, you know, Mark had so many addiction problems. So you kind of, I think, well, obviously, part that you can't just say they are victims. That's that's the thing. I, I changed my thinking a little bit because it's more nuanced than that in that they're not just victims. Mm-hmm. As you said yourself, they, they're willing participants. But I think that they were put, um, and particularly the, the, the two Brits who were, I would say, uh, the most extraordinary original artists period of, of, of their generation of in British popular culture. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and creative culture. Um, uh, you know, they were put under the most ferocious and ruthless um, uh, pressure to deliver and to deliver constantly and they already as you say they they put themselves under a great deal of pressure yeah but it was like it was never enough mm-hmm. uh, there was always another collection another line another you know another another marketing opportunity that they had to be part of and yeah uh, uh, and yeah it was it was too mm-hmm. much too much I would say as well that, you know, what, what, what struck me at a certain point where we were looking at archive and things is that you've got this culture, you've got this culture clash at the center of this. Yeah. On one hand, you've got, uh, a, you've got executives who are trained in business schools, uh, and they, uh, uh, and, you know, in the, uh, the, the grands écoles of, uh, uh, of Paris, mm-hmm. um, or, uh, or, or you know, and they are they are people who understand business and they understand marketing, um, and, and those are the people who work for Arno and Peanut, uh, and they're brilliant and savvy. But what they do not understand is these guys who have come out of a totally different tradition—the tradition, the tradition yep. of, of of really, you know, let's say in the case of the Brits and Martins, um, of art school backgrounds, mm-hmm. and these people are not trained in although i would i think ian and i always felt mcqueen was a brilliant natural businessman um uh, but they're not that's not what they're trained in and right. you know when they sign up on, on those faustian pacts to give their their soul and their name mm-hmm. to um to whichever of these tycoons it is you know i don't think that they have any real idea of what uh, what this means and what globalization really is, because globalization is kind of being invented, um, uh, uh, you know, on the back of their work by uh, by Arno and Pino. Exactly. You know, yeah. You can sell this stuff, not just in London, Paris, and Milan, and New York, but you can the four fashion kingdoms. But suddenly there are these new opportunities opening up in in in, in Asia uh, and in Russia and in mm-hmm. South America. You know, it's yeah. like there's a new world, and yeah. and and that's what they what the what the tycoons. Yeah, are. and I think they're also seeing, and especially this begins in Japan. The customer is changing. It's no longer the odd bourgeois or the former aristocracy. It's really the middle class. By and large, you know, and and there Japan leads the way. It was the first country where, like, you know, middle class housewives they wanted the Louis Vuitton bag, they wanted they wanted it's a war bag, and this was kind of and they would save up for months to get one, and this was sort of an unprecedented uh, new thing, which 
I don't even know if Arno realized at the time that that would happen, but he clearly saw what was happening. And and these guys didn't, you know, they cared about the artistry, more or less. Um, and I feel like another, you know, I think like what led to the self-destruction in a way also, and you talk about this a little bit in the film, is that they had no one around them to say, stop. They had no one around them to say, no, you can't do that. It was like, you know, you want two bottles of vodka and a plate of cocaine? Fine. Here it is. Just keep going. It, it, I think that's the real tragedy where, you know, they self-destructed. And, and I, I have a feeling, I don't know if I'm right, it's just a theory, that there's something that happened with Mark Jacobs that we don't know yet because it was a very, I don't know if it was only the addiction, maybe it was. Uh, you know, I don't want to speculate and start rumors, of course, but when he left and then two years later, LVMH shuts down Mark by Mark Jacobs, which was incredibly lucrative. And Robert Duffy, his business partner, leaves at the same time. I was like, this cannot be, like, you know, I, yeah, I'm not a business expert on that level, but I have an education in finance. And I was like, this, this makes no sense on any level. So I wonder if they were trying to distance themselves from something like before another Galliano happens. I don't know, but yeah. It, would, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, yeah. I, I can't say that I know, but I kind of like think that the that these gatekeepers we talked about earlier are ruthlessly efficient about yeah. shutting things down. Uh, and I think we don't know you know, the half of, uh, 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 of it, really, mm-hmm. in terms of what goes on behind the scenes um, in the fashion world. And, and, and I, so, yes, so I, I think your yeah. hunch could well be... You could I be have a something. feeling we will hear about this one day. But anyway, I, another topic I wanted to bring up, which I saw uh, that I think was also in your mind, is... 2004, the firing or not renewing the contract, whichever you want to put it, of Tom Ford and Domenico De Soli, I think this marks an incredibly pivotal, symbolic moment where primacy of the brand is established over the creative director or the designer. It was for the first time that the corporate machine, because let's not forget, they weren't just building companies. They were building brands. The the marketing machines that aided uh, McQueen and actually it's the other way around. McQueen, Galliano, Ford, uh, and Marc Jacobs were aiding in the marketing machines of brand building. And once those bells, uh, brands were built, it was no longer as important to have this genius creative director because the marketing machine was in place, you know, and there's, there are bits about Anna Winter there and how, and advertising and everything. But to me, it was such a symbolic moment. This was, 
a message to the entire fashion industry. The primacy of the brand over designer and you all better fall in line. I think that's exactly right. And it is an extraordinary moment. Um, uh, it, it, you really, and we wanted to make it into, make that into a turning point because in a way it becomes the omen that's then, you know, we know, we, we now know what's mm-hmm. the, 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 the that Galliano, McQueen and Jacobs are not long for this world once that's been established. I'm really interested in this sort of like the, the, the way that brands, um, the way that the, the name of the brand became more important than the flesh and blood uh, that was designing, that had made the brand and so on and so forth, you know. Yeah. Uh, the, the, to, to almost erase the person and just leave uh, just leave the logo. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we were researching McQueen, and, and again, this was something that very much fed into how we were thinking uh, about the characters and the stories in, in Kingdom of Dreams. I remember hearing a, 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 some incredible audio interview. You could barely hear it, actually. It was sort of like um, recorded in a restaurant or something with McQueen. And uh, I think it's with Tim, with, with Tim Blanks, actually. And, and McQueen is saying, McQueen is, is, is sort of like talking to, uh, to uh, Tim about the importance of, um, and he kind of goes, he kind of goes, you know, nowadays it's all about, uh, what do you call it? What do you call it? The, the, the sign, you know, the sign. And Tim is trying to help him find the word. And finally, after a couple of minutes, Tim says, oh, you mean the logo? Right. And McQueen says, yeah, the logo. And you're thinking, I mean, this is like 2003 or four, and you're mm-hmm. thinking, and it's in fact, it's just after, it was, it was 2005-ish, it was after Tom had left Gucci Group. And you're, you're, you're thinking, my God, McQueen doesn't actually... The word logo is not part of his vocabulary. Exactly. It's not even part of his, it's something that he remembers. Um, and yet the logo is what the entire industry is becoming about now. Mm-hmm. And Ford actually understood that. I mean, you know, he got sure. that and he, yeah. he fetishized the logo with brilliance. But, you know, that's the thing is it's kind of like someone who puts themselves out of business in a sense, isn't it? Because it, by exactly. doing it, that. Exactly. He built that up. <laughs> he built the product. Yeah. And, and now we live and now we're reaping what they've sown. Like logo mania didn't go away anywhere. It's every, it's way worse than before. You know, you go into a Dior store now, there's nothing without a logo on it. You know, even like the suiting will have logos on it it's it's really you know it's like dana thomas says uh in your series uh you know you're buying sort of the 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 repre- not the thing but what the thing represents yeah she and she's yeah. she's so right isn't she i mean it is astonishing to you know my, my father was in the fashion business and i mm-hmm. I'd always run away from fashion but 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 but, but, you know, it's interesting working on this because it really taught me a great deal about, about you know, my father's world, really. And, uh, and one of my, my father's Joseph Tedgi, and one of his first, one of the first designers that he worked with um, as he was building his own Joseph business was, um, was Kenzo. Uh, and 
you know, I remember from my childhood Kenzo's Kenzo, Kenzo's clothes and the, the mm-hmm. color and the the, the style and uh, and then to, if you go into a Kenzo store now and all you literally what you see on everything is before you see any design you see the logo and yeah. you know and you, you kind of like think well that is not that that is nothing to do with with, with yeah. Kenzo anymore and yeah. I think it's the same with a lot of these other with a lot of the other brands and and the designers I agree and we're talking about all those Dior Saint Laurent all of them Gucci it's all logo and what what uh, I feel is a loss, what I feel is a real loss in that mentality, that primacy over uh, of brand over designer. We don't have those larger than life designers anymore. And we don't have the, uh, and why I think we need them is because they're the ones who are the true creators who create incredible things. And I think if you don't create incredible things, then you're doing fashion as a discipline at this service. Because it's like you say, it's kingdom of dreams. These, these corporations were built on incredible, incredible talent, which then has been, you know, their products have been watered down and sort of dished out to the masses and how these conglomerates were built. But if you have nothing to wow people with, right, what's left is just product. Yeah, exactly. And, and, um, and it's that, that, that's so true. And not only do you lose the creative flair, but I think you also sacrifice um the you know on one hand you've you've democratized fashion you've put these brands into the hands of many more people um all over the world uh and of course that's generating billions upon billions of dollars of profit uh, on the other hand um that's in that scaling up inevitably a great deal of the fine craftsmanship is is lost um uh, it, it, it is just inevitable. Um, there's a great little piece in, uh, again, in Deluxe, in Dana's book that was so important for us as we started on this journey, um, where Dana uh, recalls, has Dana's doing an interview with Miuccia Prada and Prada is saying that her grandmother is just appalled at the tatty quality um, <laughs> of, uh, of of what Prada are, are producing by comparison mm-hmm. to the, the family's high standards. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, um, and I think that that, you know, that, that is something that, that is, you know, when you read that in Dana's book and you also read about how just to, in order for a pair of shoes or a handbag to have them made in Italy, um, uh, uh, legend uh, in the it, it printed on the the leather at some in some place, yeah. But actually, to earn that right to put made in Italy, you only have to have one component of the bag mm-hmm. that's made in Italy, and actually, ninety percent of the bag, um, the zip is made in in in, in China. Something the straps are made in I don't know in in India. That, and then it's all assembled, you know, yeah, it's exactly. all, it's all assembled 
Exactly. And I think when you read those things, you sort of think, well, of course, you know, that that is the flip side of globalization. Mm -hmm. Um, But you lose that fine craftsmanship. And of course, it doesn't really matter because it feeds into what you're doing. In a sense, you want people to buy the new collection, uh, the new accessory um, uh, every year. Um, mm-hmm. It's not enough that they just have one beautiful suit that will last them twenty years, or or, 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 or one amazing handbag. It, they have to have the next generation of that. Yeah, and exactly. that's very much something that characterizes our attitude to um, consumerism um, now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, last question before I let you go, but it's a big one. Uh, do we do we have a little bit of time? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Go, go for it. Um, in your research, how did you find the characters of John Galliano, McQueen, Mark Jacobs, Tom Ford? What what struck you about the four? You know, towards what were in their own ways? Yeah. I mean, I remember sitting down um, at Fremantle. Um, our, our producer, our co-producers uh, um, of the show, very uh, in one of our first brainstorms, and really having a list that went up on a whiteboard over a couple of days. In fact, we had Jeannie Becker, the wonderful Jeannie Becker, with us um, because her fashion television archive was so critical to this, and she was a very important part of, of, of the project um, alongside Dana um, in, in its early days. And um, and further on, because Jeannie, we interviewed and she, her archive appears throughout um, the archive from Fashion Television, the program that she used to yeah. present, features throughout the series. But I remember this list of hundreds of designers going up on the whiteboard and us, and uh, after a couple of days of brainstorming, Ian, Ian and I turning to each other and saying, this is unmanageable. We have a story to tell, but if we have too many characters, it will drown the story. Mm-hmm. And so we, because we also, we were looking at that point, we were also looking at other luxury conglomerates like Richemont um, and, um, and others. And so we thought, okay, the two true pioneers and main players of this period are um, Arno and Pino. The main houses are Dior, Givenchy, Vuitton, Gucci. Um, and from there on in, it became relatively easy to cast who the designers were going to be mm-hmm. because the four designers were absolutely critical to those houses. Yeah. And I think at that point, we knew that we had our six main characters. And in a sense, Anna Winter was very important as well because she was very often the person who would introduce and promote the designers to the tycoons. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as Dana calls her in the show, the tycoon whisperer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and also she's very much, you know, I think if you look at LVMH and Gucci, then when you'd have to say that, 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 that Vogue became the other vital conglomerate to this world becoming the, the, the kingdom of dreams in a sense. Right. So at that point, we knew that, that, that those seven characters were, 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 were key. And, we, and, and if we could tell the story around them, of course, we would then miss out so many other important designers. And, and um, you know, 
uh, Karl Lagerfeld always was for me a kind of like, he was the opposite of the moral tale of these four designers because, mm-hmm. you know, and he once said, you have to just have the constitution of a, of a sportsman in this world, yeah. you know, and yeah. he kept marching on in his Teutonic way, right the way through, <laughs> didn't matter how many brands, he was, how yeah. many collections, he did it all. And then on the other end of the scale, someone like Azadine Alaya, who would only share when he was ready to show Mm-hmm. Um, and was the corrective in a sense, mm-hmm. um, and, and so those two names, but obviously so many other designers that that, that we could have had in, and and arguably should have had. Uh, it, it, but when you only have four hours, you have to be and uh, you have to be ruthless. You're either just, you know, documenting a hundred things that are going on and a hundred designers' names, and you know, and so on, and a little flash of each of them. Or you're telling a story, and I think that was our thing: was we're telling a story, and we found these characters, um, you know, um, from Arno and Pino down to the four designers and Anna Winter. We find them absolutely. I mean, we find them fascinating. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, I can't. We, we, we're on to new films and projects now, but I can't quite let go of them because they've really got under my skin, and you know, um, their stories are fascinating. And as you say, it's ongoing. It's a continually yeah. ongoing. Whether it's what Anna Winter is doing for the rehabilitation of John Galliano, mm-hmm. or whether it's uh, it, it's um, who is going to be buying Tom Ford, um, and there was yeah. an extraordinary. There were rumours that it was going to be um, Pino Stroke Caring, which would have just been the most mind blowing. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Um, and. You know, it's an ongoing, so, and even in COVID, there seemed to be a kind of almost like a competition between Arno and Pino to see who would manufacture uh, the most um, the, the most tubes of disinfectant. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, uh, and obviously when, same when, when uh, Notre Dame went up in flames. That was hilarious. I yeah. mean, you know, as, as, uh, as, as Tim Blank says in the show, it's sort of like... A, Pissing contest between tycoons. It, it was, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, sorry, Notre Dame going up in flames was not hilarious. What I was trying to say is that uh, Arno donated 100 million euros for restoration, and Pino said, "You know what? I'm going to donate double that." Uh, and same with foundations, right? You know, uh, Arno opens the LVMH Foundation. What does Pino do? He buys the Boers in the middle of Paris, and he puts his own art foundation in it. But you see, Eugene, this is what's so fascinating is that, you know, they are like the Medicis. It's like, it's another another world. It's kind of, we always jokingly pitch this as Game of Thrones set in the world of Mm -hmm. fashion, but it's actually only so much of a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And we're also seeing it, now we're seeing Gucci 2.0. We saw Michele, Alessandro Michele was absolutely the same story. He got plucked out from you know the nethers of the company he was because designing a small part of the brand they gave the whole thing to to him and he carried it and the moment gucci stops performing he's up yeah absolutely we we, uh so we keep leaving we keep living the same story and that's why i think also this documentary is so timely and relevant and uh i encourage everyone to see it uh kingdom of dreams it's four-part documentary it's out in the uk on sky 
and hopefully it will come uh, to the US sooner or later and the rest of the world as well. It will do. Um, it, it will do. And in fact, it is being, it's also being released in Italy and Germany by Sky. I think it may already be up in Italy. Um, and uh, and um, South America, HBO Max, it's, it's, it's basically slowly but surely seeping out. It's not like Netflix where it's all released in one territory, what, mm-hmm. globally at the same time. But but yes, thank you so much for for, for 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 that, Eugene. And I would say it's a it's a real romp of a of a piece of storytelling. And um, a lot of the credit for that, obviously, is not just with Ian and me, but with our amazing directors who work with us, um, yeah. uh, Nick Green and Camilla Hall, and a fantastic team of editors and and archive. And as you're saying, the archive is magnificent, and it's, we have a fantastic yeah. archive team. Uh, so yeah. it really, and it was a labor of love for us all. We, it, we fa- just a, a fascinating story to tell. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, everyone go see it wherever you can. And, uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you. Take care. You've been listening to the Styles I Guys podcast hosted by Eugene Rapkin, produced by Patrick Leduc. Intro and outro music by Wesley Isolt of Cold Cave. Please support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Thank you for listening.